Hello there and welcome to TWM, the weekly roundup programme of the Scottish Football Monitor, asking the questions the mainstream media will not ask, right here at sfm.scot. Yeah, I'm John Cole and this week we'll be recapping the events of the weekend international and championship. I will also be talking for a second time in a fortnight with David Lowe to see if we can navigate a path through the maze of spinning sonography that has surrounded the unexpected release of Rangers International Football Club accounts. I'll also be talking about a great hero of mine and of St Johnston and Sterling Albion fans too, the wonderful Henry Hall. Well, at the end of International Week, I think I know now how a manager feels when he loses a goal just before half-time. The podcasting version of the dreaded team talk change has just occurred for me as Chris Martin squeezed in that shot to give Scotland what had seemed like an unlikely victory against Slovenia at Hamden, and a goal which put Scotland back in the frame with a slight hope of qualification from the World Cup group. Now, instead of talking about the probability of the manager handing in his notice this morning, we are able to focus a bit more on the potential that Scotland displayed on a night when they probably should have won the game even more comfortably. Some performances, notably those of Kieran Tierney and debutant Stuart Armstrong, were excellent and they were maintained despite the disappointment of the missed opportunities early in the game. The main talking point, of course, uh, pre-match was the inclusion of six Celtic players. On form, it's pretty hard to argue against any of them being picked, but I wonder if stacking the international side with so many players from one team is really conducive to the unity that we desperately need in the terracings. I'm not arguing either way, for or against, but at least we should be asking ourselves why it is that our game is so skewed that the bulk of our national team comes from just one club. Still, they did show some potential on Sunday, but it is still only potential. The problems that the Scottish game uh, have, and which have manifested themselves in international mediocrity for years, are not confined to 11 players in dark blue. If this Scotland team reaches any potential, it will be despite the amateur headless chicken approach of the governing body, whose main focus is on hard cash and has very little to do with the excellence of the sport itself. The ironic, as it turned out, booing of Chris Martin was also embarrassing and sad, but again, not altogether out of character for Scotland fans. Sadly, we do have form in this regard. The fans' frustrations are, of course, understandable given the recent level of performance, but it seems to me the best way to vent that frustration is just don't turn up. Booing a player who is simply doing his best for the cause is definitely not supporting the team, and it's far more likely to demoralise players, which, of course in turn will lead to even poorer performance. And of course it would turn a grey hair of the unwise old men who run our game. Uh, The only way to do that is not to buy tickets. That'll be far, far more effective. I think a simple apology is due to Chris Martin and a fervent hope that he can repeat that feat, of course, in June when England come to Hamden. And speaking of England, uh, their own fans disgraced them last week against Germany. Uh, the crass German bait and sentiment of the Dambusters song and other songs, uh, like the booing of a player at the Scotland match, is not a criminal offence. But it is lumping, oafish, sad and embarrassing. It reflects badly in football and it reflects badly in both countries. And it really worries me ahead of that match in June. Meanwhile in the Championship, Hibs dramatically claimed all three points against Falkirk with an injury time James Keating screamer. The 2-1-1 puts the Edinburgh side 10 points clear of the Bairns at the top with just seven games to go. 
Third place Morton uh, lost their momentum by losing away to Dunfermline and indeed United in fourth uh, don't play until Tuesday. The top four however have built a gap to fifth that makes it increasingly likely that Hibs will be champions and that the playoffs will be contested by Falkirk, Morton and United. Still a few chapters to come I suppose concerning what the order of the final four will be but like Stuart Cosgrove said last week it really is a competitive league worthy of our attention. In the past week, Rangers International Football Club, the owners of Rangers Football Club Limited, uh, issued some performance figures. RIFC are of course no longer listed on the stock exchange, something that has exercised the minds of many of their shareholders since their previous listing ended. Consequently, they are under no obligation to release numbers on a half-yearly basis, which is what these accounts represent. The headline figure in the accounts as represented by the board is that the club is now in profit. A marginally closer look at the figures appears to say something different. In fact, that the club has made a loss in the first half of this season. So what's the truth, uh, or uh, as best we can ascertain it? Why release these numbers now? How reliable are the figures? Uh, And what does the process tell us, if anything, about the state of play at Ibrox? More importantly, perhaps, how does it affect Rangers themselves and the rest of us? Two weeks ago, David Lowe spoke to us about the decision of the Takeover Mergers panel to require Dave King to make an offer of 20 pence for all of the RIFC shares. Rangers posting a profit we thought might change the dynamic of that situation, so rather than have me disappearing down the finance and commerce rabbit hole myself, jumping to all sorts of ridiculous conclusions, we asked David to join us again to try and find a way around the spin and wishful thinking on all sides of this debate. Hey, first of all, David, thanks for coming on again. And uh, looking at the, the Rangers International Football accounts, do you think that what they've put out is a fair representation of a company in profit, first of all? Well, it's very very difficult to see. If you're talking about the figures for the six months to the end of uh, December, uh, these are unaudited figures uh, with no, very little information provided. There's no balance sheet. There's no cash flow. They're not really significant or any figures that you can read too much into. The most important uh, yardstick uh, for Rangers uh, accounts are, are, are the audited accounts that came out earlier this year for the 12 months to June 2016. And uh, they were only uh, come out uh, as a going concern uh, on the basis that the directors had put more money in after the year end and had undertaken to put even more money in uh, this month, March 2017. So those audited accounts are the important accounts. The interim accounts give an idea of where the company is right now, but you can't really rely on them too much. Well, I suppose the first question I've got is that they're not listed in the stock exchange, so therefore there's no requirement for them to put those accounts out. And what I'm thinking is, you know, perhaps this is me being cynical, but what I'm thinking is that if there's no requirement to do something, then there must be something in it for somebody to do what they've done. So, so what's in it for them to release these figures at the moment? Well, it, it, it is a good thing to reduce uh, to produce interim accounts, uh, whether they're audited or not. Uh, you know, all the shareholders, or the vast majority of the shareholders in Rangers International uh, Football Club, PLC, 
acquired the shares when it was uh, listed on or when it came onto the alternative investment market. So they were used to receiving six monthly accounts. They were used to uh, receiving uh, regular communications from the company in respect of its financial affairs. And it's only sensible and fair and reasonable that they should continue to receive six monthly figures. So uh, the directors have put the, the figures out. So I don't. I wouldn't be reading too much into yeah. the fact that they come out with six monthly figures. I don't think it's an important issue at all. In fact, okay. Well, what, what about a lot of the other stuff that's going around just now? I mean, for instance, I think one of the problems getting to the bottom of a lot of this stuff is that people issue statements. It could be the the board uh, at Rangers. It could be the media. It could be people in the blogosphere. What? People just accept them or reject them on the basis of what their allegiances are, you know. And for example, uh, there's a rumor going around just now that uh, the increase in the RA, uh, the Rangers International Football turnover uh, includes 2.9 million pounds of loans in the revenue figure. Uh, now, it, that seems to me to be highly unlikely. What, what, what's your take on that? Well, first of all, it's not possible to determine from what was released by the club. Uh, whether £2.9 million worth of loan was included as revenue or not, uh, because there's no information provided. Having said that, I would be astounded, and astounded, I thought before I said that, (laughs) if income that wasn't income was included in the turnover to make the figures look better than they are, I would be extremely surprised if that was the case. You You can't rule it out. But you asked me the question, yeah. and I've answered it as best I can. So I wouldn't be... I'm, I'm not really interested in speculation of that type. Yeah. Uh, I think football fans, Rangers fans, Rangers shareholders, anybody with an interest in Rangers should be sticking to the facts and looking at the facts. And you can interpret the facts, but speculation, uh, partisan speculation on either side of the fence uh, is, is not really worth that much well okay well here's here's another one one of Dave King's statements he said that we're happy to put money in to cover the retail costs uh, presumably the shortfall in retail he's talking about it's not a lot of money it's five or six million pounds and I'm confident of striking a deal with Mike Ansley to allow the club to sell their own jerseys this summer now I, I would have thought that anybody receiving that quote for King would, would perhaps have thought it appropriate to ask uh, that um but how long that kind of funding of losses is likely to maintain and what impact uh, that uh, that it might have in the FIFA Fair Play guidelines. But do you think it's fair to infer that this kind of talk in terms of turnover, low maintenance of losses and peace with Ashley is a true reflection of the situation or is it maybe a bid to talk up the, pair, the share price? Well, there is no share price because there is no share listing. Uh, so I, I, I don't think that's relevant either. Uh, what's relevant to the value of Rangers shares is the performance of the company. Uh, and the performance of the company thus far has been very poor. The company thus far has never made a profit. It's only ever made losses. Yeah. And it's still making losses because those interim figures that we just talked about a minute ago showed that in the six months to December they made a loss of £300,000. So that's the most important yardstick for the value of the shares. Is this a profitable company or is this a loss-making company? There's nothing to suggest that it's a profitable company thus far. So therefore, that that's a negative. Uh, you said, Dave King said, mm. that uh, he'd be happy 
to lend more money or to put money in to cover uh, retail shortfalls. I've never met anybody that's ever happy about having to uh, continually lend money to a business with no end in sight. So I don't really accept that. I think that sounds a bit glib to uh, to be truthful. Uh, so it's very difficult to work out how much Ranger shares are are. are yeah, worth at this moment in time because there is no stock exchange yardstick. Okay, well, we'll, we'll move into the uh, the takeover panel situation. Uh, I'm slightly kind of well, that is the most important yeah. issue of all. Well, well first but of all, everything else is secondary, tertiary, and of little importance compared to this development. This is the most significant development to affect. Rangers International since it was born in 2012. Okay, well, I wonder if you could, could answer a question. Um, I, I, there was one of our subscribers last night uh, asked on the blog if the people who had been suspended from voting, the shareholders who had been suspended from voting because they hadn't disclosed who they were, I think Blue Pitch Holdings were, were one such block, uh, <clears throat> that uh, would King be required to make an offer for their shares? Because I think in the company's articles association, there's something that disqualifies them from profit. From a, from a share sale? No, he has to make an offer to all the shareholders uh, regardless 82, or 81.5 million shareholders right. uh, of which him and his concert party bedfellows own 34% he has to make an offer to all the shareholders outstanding and outside that grouping okay. at the price that they paid uh, a couple of years ago, 20 pence. Does it matter whether they've got a prior status within Rangers no. International Football Club or not? Okay. Right, well, no. Firstly, first of all then, let, let's look at his options. If he does make an offer, what, what do you think is likely to happen given the, the, the situation with the shares? Well, it's not a matter of opinion. So yeah. uh, what I'm about to say might be right or might be wrong. But uh, I think given the state of the Rangers balance sheet that uh, if there was... A twenty pounds a share offer, there would be a stampede to accept twenty pounds a share. You got to remember, there's a whole lot of people uh, that paid one pence per share, and this is an opportunity to make twenty times their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of shareholders that recognise that uh, it's not an attractive investment, and would be tempted to accept twenty pence a share, even if they paid seventy pence a share. So I think that uh, is part of the uh, deliberation process in mm-hmm. uh, Dave King's thinking as to whether he should make an offer or not. You can tell that in some of the interviews uh, he's been having, you know, I might do this or I might do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not enjoying it as much as I thought I would. I don't have to be doing this. This sort of sounds a little bit like hedging his bets and he's not decided whether he will make an offer or not. Or perhaps where he's, whether he's able to make an offer or not. But one of the things that he said last week was that they, uh, I would have to make an offer uh, and there would have to be a 50% acceptance of that offer, which means that uh, Mike Ashley, the Easedales and Club 72 would have to accept. Uh, and therefore he's concluded on that basis that the, the chance of it being accepted is remote. But um, is that 50% thing? I've, I've never heard of that before. But what, what, what is he on about and is he on firm ground with, with that claim? Well, first of all, it's neither here nor there what Dave King thinks. At the end of the day, the takeover panel have asked him to make an offer mm-hmm. or told him to make an offer and he has to make an offer. So his opinion in these matters is neither here nor there. Uh, having said that, 
the only way you can compulsorily acquire uh, somebody's shares is if you reach the 90% mark. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to accept the offer, you don't have to accept the offer, and you can keep your shares for better or for worse. Yeah, but I think what That's he's basically but I think what he's basically saying here is that there would have to be fifty percent of the people who I offered the money to accepting it in order for the sale to go through at all. That's certainly what I'm inferring from. No, that. that's that's not true. So if only one person with ten shares decided they wanted to sell, they would have to buy those ten shares, and and if that was all, yes. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, so there, there's no mention, uh, of course, of an offer uh, being prepared other than a wee quote that he, that he said that he would have to think about it. Uh, but he also said that he would have to decide whether to appeal or not. Uh, now, the, again, uh, you know, the, 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 there has been some talk, certainly from you a couple of weeks ago here, and some uh, some other uh, chat that I've, that I've heard in the newspapers, that that is the appeal process that's already been exhausted. Well, that's correct. There is no appeal. It's over. He has to make the offer or not. Okay, so so therefore, again, we're talking opinion here, but it certainly sounds as if that he's not very keen to make an offer because otherwise there wouldn't be any posture, would there? Not very keen. Well, I I don't know whether he's very keen or not. All, all I know is that he has to make an offer or mm. be cold shouldered, which is a horrible thing. Okay, to have happened to you if you work in financial markets and want to continue working in financial markets. And cold shouldering is not an experience you want to have. Well, that was the next thing I was going to ask, because if he doesn't make an offer, we know what the consequences for him are, but what are the consequences for the other members of the concert party? And what are the, the, the consequences for maybe current board members, uh, like executives on the, on the board, uh, and, and, for the, and for the club itself? Well, it, it wouldn't be very good for... Rangers, the whole institution, Rangers International, if their chairman uh, was cold-shouldered and essentially persona non grata in financial markets. An import of this is that anybody that's uh, regulated financial advisors, lawyers, accountants uh, uh, would be instructed not to deal with this, this, this pers- any such person. So and that would be very damaging on Rangers reputationally, actually, and in, indeed any way you care to look at it. It's almost unthinkable uh, that he, he, he would attempt to stay involved with Rangers if he didn't make an offer. Having said that, you never know. Anything's possible. So your situation, if you were in that position, which obviously you you would you would tell me you wouldn't be in that position in the first place, but but if you were in that position, you you, you seem to be saying to me that that, uh, that there is no alternative. He's got to make an offer. Simple as that. You've got to make an offer or be cold shouldered. Uh, I.e., it's, it's all over. You'll never do anything again in financial markets, and nobody will act for you. And so that's pretty bleak. That's pretty horrible. That's somewhere you don't want to go, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you would pull out all the stops to avoid getting yourself into a situation like that in the first place if you did not want to make an offer, or uh, if you were prepared to make an offer, uh, you would make sure that you had the resources available to make that offer. Mm-hmm. One thing you wouldn't do is get yourself into a situation like that and try and uh, blarney your way out of it by 
saying that you, know, you didn't have to make an offer because you're not in a concert party when all the evidence suggested that you were. Yeah. So, the takeover, at the end of the day, the takeover panel has opined that he has to make an offer. So, the implications of not making it are horrendous. So, that tends to suggest that you, a normal person would pull out all the stops to make an yeah. offer. And if he decided he didn't want to make an offer, then he's pretty much finished in in, in Scotland in, in terms of Scottish football, would he not be? Pretty much finished in terms of anything in the UK, never yeah. mind Scotland. And, and, and is that... I, I don't think uh, he could possibly de- be deemed fit and proper if he was cold-shouldered by the, uh, the takeover panel. Yeah. I don't think that's... Uh, a stretch of the imagination. And uh, do you think maybe the, the, he's given us a wee hint about what his future intentions are when he was talking about uh, wishing to spend more time in South Africa and have to spend less time jetting over to Scotland? Well, reading between the lines, uh, that's up to everybody that's familiar with what we're talking about to read between the lines. Yeah. That's, uh, reading between the lines, that suggests he's sort of hedging his bets a bit. I suppose, though, that suggests that there's a possibility that there won't be an offer for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there may well be. Who knows? We'll find out in uh, the twelfth of April. If you were in this situation um, yourself at the moment, would you think that that's perhaps taking the, the the focus away from the team, away from the new manager, maybe giving him a wee bit of time to, to bed in while the while the board are taking a lot of flack and and uh, and making a lot of noise about uh, about profits and, and so on and so forth? Uh, no, I don't think that's uh, uh, an issue because for whatever reason you won't read about this in the Scottish mainstream press either because they don't understand it but more likely because they don't want to touch it because it's a hot totty and they don't want to isolate a lot of their readership yeah. it really is the biggest thing to hit Rangers since uh, the liquidation uh, this development with the takeover panel it's a huge story I don't think I've read any read about it anywhere in the papers thus far. No, they they, they have tended to treat it with uh, with, with kid gloves. But but how how could it affect the whole of Scottish football, David? And I ask you this because I I know that, that you think Rangers are important to the game in Scotland. So how would something that's as disadvantageous to Rangers as you think it is? How could that be disadvantageous to the rest of Scotland? Well, I mean, I'm. Uh, somewhat controversial in, in that I, I think uh, the more uh, large teams strong teams we have in Scotland the better uh, I'm delighted Rangers are in the Premier League and I uh, would like them to be putting on a, a strong show and challenging for honours because uh, that's a good thing yeah. it makes the game stronger and uh, that's always been my view I know it's not the view of a lot of people but that's my view so I, I, I don't think it's good for the Scottish game if Rangers have financial problems, which they do have. So there's a danger here that uh, you know Dave King becomes the story at Rangers' expense. You know the same applies in politics. When a politician becomes the story, you know he usually resigns. So if this matter will come to a head in, in a few weeks' time in April, so I think things will become clearer then. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and until then, it's all speculation. Thanks again for coming on tonight, David. No problem. 
David Lowe there answering some of the questions that we had over the Rangers issue. For what it's worth, my own opinion is that Dave King won't make any offer for the for the Rangers shares. I think that he's given us a big, big hint that he would rather be in South Africa than in Scotland. And I've got the feeling within the next couple of weeks that we might hear that, uh, that, he's, that he's done his best and it hasn't worked out. Uh, and for reasons of a uh, family, he is off back to South Africa. Jetting, maybe. And now, just before we go. Henry Hall is one of those magical names from my past. A member of the Great St. Johnson side of the late 60s and 70s, he's a player who left an indelible mark on me and who's become one of my all-time greats. Born on the 22nd of April 1945, Henry was named after the band leader Henry Hall, who had a long association with the Glen Eagles Hotel, and who was presumably a favourite of Henry's parents. Small in stature, Henry was signed in 1965 by Sterling Albion from junior side Kirkintilloch Rob Roy. In four years at Anfield, with two ends, Henry established himself in the first team, playing 89 times, scoring 22 goals and picking up a second division title badge on the way. The peak of his career, though, came when he signed for Bully Ormond St Johnson in 1968. Fans of a certain vintage will remember Ormond's team as a formidable attacking force. There was pace and trickery in the wings, courtesy of Kenny Aird and the enigmatic Fred Aitken, of whom there are a few stories worth telling. Uh, and perhaps they will be later. There was guile and there was goals from John Connolly, and defensive resolve was supplied by Benny Rooney, another guy with great stories to tell, and the world-renowned pigeon fancier John Lambie. Connolly was to go on to star with Everton, but Hall was for me the jewel in Ormond's crown. He was quick and agile in the penalty box, with a knack of being in the right place at the right time. With his back to goal, defenders found it difficult to read him. Which way would he turn before shooting or laying the ball off to a teammate? A cerebral presence in the field, Henry prompted, prodded and struck with equal efficacy. And as one of the main prongs in speedy attacks, he struck terror into this young Celtic fan's heart every time I saw him play. During his time in Perth, Saints came third in the Scottish Football League and they reached the 1969 Scottish League Cup final, which they lost narrowly to Bertie single strike uh, for the all-conquering Celtic. Henry played 187 times for the Mutant Park team, scoring 85 goals. Not bad for a natural number 10, even if he did usually wear number 8. I once saw him at Broomfield, probably around 1970, play against Airdrie. And he totally ran the show. Every time he got the ball, the Erdry players were in a panic. He scored one goal that day and he ran the Erdry defenders ragged. It was a masterly display of skill and tenacity and understated goal celebrations. The exact same St Johnson side, player for player, that was to feature in that League Cup final also played against Celtic at Celtic Park a few months earlier in the first league game of that season. Saints' emergence as a force in Scotland was reflected in the size of the crowd that day, 62,000. It was a wonderful sunny August day, a great day for football, and Saints were also the highest scoring team in the UK at the time, having scored 22 goals in their League Cup section. An entertaining and exciting hard-fought 2-2 draw was the outcome, but I was struck by the graceful wee number 8 who effortlessly wriggled free from the shackles of Brogan, Gemmell and Clark, time and time again in the match. 
After Willie Orman became a Scotland manager, Henry moved to Jim McLean's in the United. That was 1975 when Henry was 30. He played 34 times for United, scoring 8 goals before moving on to Montrose where he became coach and later manager. Henry also worked as a youth team coach for St Johnson between 2000 and 2002 but was made redundant in that year as the club cut costs after they were relegated from the Premier League. Like Roger Hindle, who featured in this programme a few weeks ago, Henry had a plan B. Whilst at Stirling, he turned down the opportunity to go to Belgium to play for Bruges because he was set in a attending teacher training college and he did exactly that he taught PE at Falkirk High School in the early 70s at Kirkton High School in the late 70s and at Rockwell High School in Dundee in the 1980s he actually made history by taking the field for Saints alongside one of his own pupils Jim Pearson who then went on to Everton later in his career Henry's now retired from football and teaching and as a member of the Saints Hall in fame he visits McDermott Park regularly Hall is one of those players whose stats don't tell the whole story. St Johnson fans do know the story, of course. They know that Henry's paltry single international honour in a league international in 1970 was not a fair reflection of his talents as a footballer or of his impact in St Johnson specifically and the Scottish game in general. His self-effacing posture belied his importance as a player, but those who saw him play were not fooled by his preference to be out of the spotlight. On the field... Henry Hall shone as brightly as any player of his generation. The fact that he didn't play for one of the bigger clubs doesn't diminish his achievements, it enhances them. I was absolutely privileged to see Henry Hall play, and I would just like to say thanks, Henry, for the memories. Well, that's about it for this week. Thanks to David once again for helping us to clear a path through the financial jungle. I'd also like to offer an apology to Chris Martin on behalf of everyone at SFM and our thanks to you for being at one once again with TWM at sfm.scot. I've been John Cole. See you next time.